You're listening to the Redeemer London podcast. For more information, visit our website at redeemerlondon.org. And we're in a series at the moment on heroes. And um, Pete, when he selected the heroes that we're going to look at, has selected some unsung heroes. And so we've looked at Stephen, we've looked at Rahab, and this morning we're going to look at another, I would say, unsung hero. I'm not going to tell you who it is yet. I'm going to tell you five quick dynamite things about this person to whet your appetite. So, firstly, this woman is the only woman in the Bible whose recorded story spans from her childhood all the way through to the day of her death. In the way that you would tell a story in Hebrew times, that would mean a lot. On her death, there was not just a day of mourning or five days of mourning, but 30 solid days of mourning, the same length of mourning that Israel had for Moses and for Aaron. She was really missed. Her name appears not just in the book of Exodus, which is where we're going to turn today, but also in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, in 1 Chronicles, and in Micah. She's all over the Old Testament. And then this section in Micah is actually 700 years after her death. And Micah, God speaks through Micah and says, you know what, for the Exodus, for bringing the people out of slavery, I gave you three people, Israel. One, Moses. Two, Aaron. And three, this lady. One commentator says just on that, that God lists this lady in such select company because by this point, 700 years later, she had already set an example for all Israelites, both in her time and in the future. This lady's pretty cool. And then lastly, by the time we get to 1,500 years later when Jesus is born, there are six women in the Gospels who are named after this Israelite hero. So Jesus' mother, Mary, her parents said, we want to pick a name that speaks of a great legend, a great hero of Israel past. So, of course, we're talking about Miriam. Miriam and Mary is the same name. There are six women whose parents in the New Testament must have said, I'm going for a great name. I'm going for Miriam. I'm going for Mary. We are studying today the life of Miriam. You might know a lot about Miriam. You might not know very much. As we look at her story, we're going to look at her influence and her example And it's linked quite a lot through to a theme of worship. So Pete, in kind of telling me that I was going to look at the story of Miriam, said, I'll tell you what I'd love you to really pull out is this theme of worship. Uh, It is dangerous giving a worship leader a microphone to talk about worship. I've got about 400 points about what we're going to do on Sunday mornings. Um, So we're going to look at a little bit, literally, our Sunday morning worship and Miriam's example. We're also going to look at how worship is a lifestyle and what Miriam's life can speak to us. So hopefully you're pumped for that. She's a pretty amazing woman. We're going to get straight into it. Um, One little caveat, Kezia, my wife, this week watched the Exodus film directed by Ridley Scott. If you've seen it, there is a scene where Miriam gets her arm grabbed by Ramesses, and Ramesses has got this absolutely massive, wicked sword and threatens to chop her arm off. There are no accounts in the Bible of that actually happening. So if you're like, Miriam, the one thing I know about Miriam is this wicked scene that's about to come up with this, like, threatened amputation There are no threatened amputations in this sermon, so sorry to disappoint you. Okay, so we're going to look at three different things about Miriam. Miriam steps out, Miriam sings out, and Miriam speaks out. We've recently had a sermon series about Exodus, looking at the life of Moses. So we're actually in the same story, but we're going a familiar story from a really kind of unique viewpoint. This is going to be quite different to the series we've had already. So, Miriam... We're going to look mainly at, I guess, her example in the context of worship, but I want to kick off with her first appearance in the Bible. Her first little appearance. This is 
Even as a seven-year-old, Miriam, in this scene, has a massive impact on the history of the future of Israel. So, let me start. Ramesses II is in charge. Ramesses realizes, you know what? There's a whole load of Egyptians in this country, but there are more slaves. There are more Israelite slaves than Egyptians in the country. So, he makes this horrendous command that all newborn boys will be thrown into the Nile if they're born of a Hebrew woman. Miriam's about seven at this point. She knows her mom, Jochebed, is pregnant. And so, can you imagine a seven-year-old just thinking, but what if this is a boy? What if my brother's born as a boy? And Moses is born and is a boy. And the Bible says that we read Moses is fine, is special, insignificant. And at this point, you read this and you think, I think every mum and dad thinks their baby's kind of fine, don't they? You know, every mum thinks their baby's beautiful, and sometimes they're wrong. They will not hear you. Like, if you say that, no, I'm, I'm not saying you should say that, but parents will be like, every child is special. But actually what the Bible is saying is, there was something of significance, even from birth, the family, Miriam, would have known, this baby, there's something special going on here about the future of Israel. And so her mum, Jochebed, comes up with this, this plan, which I hadn't realized until this week, is essentially still to throw the baby in the Nile. I was like, you know, Ramesses is like, all these babies are going to throw me. She's like, yeah, okay, let's still do that, but I'll build them a boat. So Miriam and her mum, Jochebed, were probably sitting there making this little mini ark. It says it has a roof and everything. It's the same word, ark, is from Noah, for Moses. And they put Moses, when he's born, into this little ark and put it on the Nile. And Jochebed comes up with this plan which involves Miriam, which is essentially this. I'm going to leave you, Miriam, close by. You're going to wander down. I want you just to watch and see what happens. I mean, Miriam, we think, is seven years old. She's got this huge responsibility. Suddenly, she's the person in charge of the protection and the future, the life of this little baby who's going to go on to change a nation. So imagine Miriam, seven years old, wandering down as Moses in his Moses basket is going down. And, and then suddenly, Pharaoh's daughter steps out and finds the baby. Every mum in the room knows what's happening to the baby, yeah? It's bawling its eyes out. Like we read in the verse, the baby is crying. Yeah, you don't say. He's in a, an ark on a boat. So he's crying, and Miriam sees her chance. Seven years old, this little girl sees this is the moment for me to do something. This is my chance right here to save Moses' life. And so I think probably we read these verses, they were probably hoping that Pharaoh's daughter would turn up in that they probably would have picked this section of the Nile to put little Moses in his Moses basket in. Miriam sees her chance, and what does she do? She essentially says this, oh no, it looks like you found a baby, and that baby needs feeding. Probably feeding about half an hour ago. I tell you what, maybe I can help you why don't I just wander off and see if I can find a Hebrew woman? Any Hebrew woman. I can't tell you who it might be. Who knows? The first one I come across. And maybe that Hebrew woman could help you because you can't feed this baby and it's crying alone. And God's amazing plan is that Miriam steps in and Pharaoh's daughter says, yes, go and find me a Hebrew woman. So Miriam goes and finds her mum, Moses' mum. And the great irony, the great beauty, the great plan of God is that Miriam would have run home to her mum, Jochebed, and been like, you know what? Pharaoh's going to pay you to bring up your own child now. It's amazing. So Miriam, right from the start, has had this massive, significant impact on Moses' life. 
I hadn't realized that actually, if we read the verse, she would have gone back and told her mom and her mom would have taken the baby. Probably Moses would have been brought up for the first nine or ten years in the Hebrew home, in Jochebed, in their home, with Miriam, with Aaron. The significance, therefore, of Miriam's action and Miriam stepping in is that Moses is brought up with the convictions and the character of a Hebrew, of one whose parents worship the Hebrew, the Israelite God. His whole life is changed by the fact that Miriam steps in. So even at her first appearance at seven, she does something pretty cool. Don't believe my word for it, we'll read the verse. His sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young woman walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. And when she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister, that's Miriam, said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl, Miriam, went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I'll give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. Let's not overlook, Miriam is a slave girl, born into a slave family in a slave population, speaking to royalty with courage and eloquence. She's a pretty great story right from the start. Okay, we're going to move on to maybe honing in a little bit more on the worship side of things. So we're going to skip forward in the story 80 years. So Miriam goes from being seven to 87. 40 years, Moses, we read in Exodus, is in Egypt. Another 40 years, he's in Midian. And we're just going to bring you right up to date on the story where all the plagues have happened. I want to try and un-Sunday school this story because we kind of, we have a picture in our mind of what it's like. Imagine this scene. The whole of Egypt is mourning from the plagues. Pharaoh said that the Israelites can go. And 600,000 men and 600,000 women and probably over a million children get up from their homes and leave. All at the same time, this crazy, heady night. Imagine the emotion in that night. You're leaving this nation en masse. And so probably very, very slowly. I always think, you know, oh, the, the Israelites are like, hey, let's get out of this country. There's like probably between two and three million of them all in a horde, probably going very slowly out that night. And they reach the point of the sea, and suddenly they realize Pharaoh's after them. Pharaoh's got 200,000 foot soldiers, 50,000 horsemen, and the best chariots. They are the most sophisticated, most feared army in civilization at the time, and they chase them down to the sea. Miriam's there in that two million. Miriam is there, age 87, looking around saying, this was going to be the impossible dream, but no. Pharaoh's here. We've got no chance. We're pinned up against the sea, and we've got this huge, amazing army about to, at best, take us back to slavery. And then God delivers them. We hear that God says to them, you know what, Israel? You're never going to see these Egyptians again. And at that point, God comes down in the form of a cloud and blocks the Egyptians' view. So they're like, whoa, I can't see where where did all the Israelites go. And again, let's not Sunday school this story. God takes a sea and makes it into two huge walls with a dry patch down the middle. 
You can't even imagine this incredible scene. A massive sea. We're talking miles and miles long, hundreds of foot high, walls of water. I'm reading this this week thinking, God is good with water. He knows how to do cool stuff. Like at creation, you've got the waters above and the waters below, and he makes some awesome stuff out of that. You've got the flood and you've got water into Y. God is good with H2O. Like he's here and boom. Meters, hundreds of meters high, miles and miles long, there are these huge walls. And Miriam along with the rest of Israel, start to walk through. They get to the other side, and in what one commentator describes as probably the single most misguided military decision in history, Egypt's massive army, completely forgetting that God has been defending Israel all the way through, plow into the Nile, and God in one move says, you will never see the Egyptians again. And so Miriam is standing when we get to this verse, on the shore, the other side of the sea, God having delivered her and her family and her people, their freedom is suddenly real to them. They're free from the bondage of slavery, all the cruelty, all the evil, and freed forever with Egypt powerless ever to reclaim them because they don't even have an army anymore. And this is a picture for us also of our salvation. Stuck, no way out. God comes and delivers us, makes a way for us to walk through to the other side. And God says to us, you will never see them again. We're free from bondage and slavery in our lives in a similar way to how Miriam must suddenly feel this jubilation, this excitement, this joy. And we get to this part of the passage. And if you like music, now we're talking. So this is the first song in the Bible. This is the first recorded song in the Bible. Let's read the passage. So, Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I'm not going to put a tune to this, but, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. In the message version, it says, the horse and the rider have been pitched into the sea. Moses then sings some more verses, and Miriam here, Then Miriam, our hero, the prophetess, we're going to come back and look at what that word prophetess means in a minute, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. I was telling some people earlier, this word tambourine in the Hebrew means tinkle. So it could be a tambourine, it could be like some cymbals, it could be some bells. The same word is used for all those things, and the same word is also used for drums. So for all we know, she's got this great big drum going boom. I like to think of it that way. And all the women went out after her with tambourines, with some kind of tinkle percussion and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider have been pitched into the sea. Okay, we're going to sit and look at these verses for a while. We're going to hone in on five key points of this worship aspect of Miriam's legacy. And the first point is this. You're not going to see this as a point in any other sermon. It is one big antiphonal exchange. Okay, honestly, hands up. Who knows what an antiphonal exchange means? Sam Isaacson, I'm looking at you. Okay, so an antiphonal exchange is a musical term that means call and response. So if you study music at like A-level, you'll probably look at some antiphonal exchanges in classical music. Essentially, what we've got is Moses starts off. Him and the men... We've shown a video, it's fine. Him and the men sing a bit of a song. And it's beautiful, it's a great song. He says things like, 
Who is like you, God, glorious in holiness, fearful in praise, doing wonders? He wraps up saying, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. And then Miriam, she says, all right, now it's our turn. And she stands up, and with her, the women of Israel stand up with not just their voices, but instruments and dancing, and they sing the same thing back. It's a call and a response. We've probably got in the verse, it only shows two lines of what she sang, but we're led to believe that's a bit like an iTunes, like 30-second preview, you know, just like a little bit of the song. She probably sang with the women the whole song back to Moses, at which point Moses and the men probably sang it all the way back. And don't forget, this is 600,000 men and 600,000 women plus kids. This is a big choir. And what we've got here is this back and forward, call and response, antiphonal exchange. I thought, you know, if you're going to do a sermon and you're going to talk about worship and you're going to use the words antiphonal exchange, what other songs do we have? So can anybody think of a song that we do at Redeemer that's got antiphonal exchange in it? Anybody? So we do, we, you are holy, you are holy. So that's antiphonal exchange. So imagine that, but with 600,000 people and with awesome, massive, sick tambourines and percussion. That's a little bit like what we've got here. We also do, um, oh, happy day, oh, happy. So that's like in, in lots of African-American contexts. In Africa now, you still get loads and loads of like, their, their classical music, if you like. Their traditional music is antiphonal exchange. And then I thought, let's have a look at, at some outside of Christian music, because, you know, Christian music's not all that great. So Mark and Julia are going to show us a couple of examples of antiphonal exchange. Enjoy. Okay, antiphonal exchange. you got like... Okay, antiphonal exchange. Great, one antiphonal exchange, the who. I bet you didn't think you'd get, you'd get in the who this morning. What we got next? Antiphonal exchange? Very nice. Very good. This is, this is Moses and Miriam. Okay, great. And one more, probably my favorite antiphonal exchange in contemporary music. I think we should just carry on listening. We've got to get to the guitar solo. Can turn up any more? Okay. Great. I think we just carry on listening to Queen for the rest of the morning. Great, thanks, Mark. So, antiphonal exchange. What you have is Moses and Miriam, the men and the women, singing in antiphonal exchange. Okay, second point, slightly more spiritual. Miriam is described as being a prophetess. So she leads the vocals as a prophetess. So I guess we were asking, why is she considered such a hero years and years after her death? This is partly why. So we're going to be starting a series soon on the Holy Spirit, and we're going to really delve deep into what does prophet, what does prophecy mean? We're not going to do that necessarily today. But she was, Miriam, the first woman to be called a prophetess. She's got significance for the nation of Israel, and that she stands up as a prophetess. She is one to whom and through whom God speaks. He reveals his character and his will through Miriam. Now, there are two different types of prophet we're talking about here. So in the Old Testament, there's no Bible, yeah? Moses is still in the story. He's not written the Bible, the first five books of the Bible yet. And so there are different demands on a kind of exodus prophetess. 
Essentially, this is what Deuteronomy says. If you claim to be a prophet and you speak about something that's going to happen in the future, if it happens, you can actually say you're a prophet. If it doesn't happen exactly as you say, you're a false prophet. So you've got to have a 100% success rate. So Miriam is considered in the Bible a prophetess. She is really genuinely speaking who God is and what he's doing. And also, she is bringing first-time revelation. God is revealing who he is and what he's going to do for the first time because people don't have the Bible. But on a Sunday morning, we're going to start to talk a little bit about application for us on Sundays. On a Sunday morning, we don't really have people come to the mic and say, right, God has spoken something to me. I'm 100% accurate. And what he's told me, it doesn't, you can't really see it in the Bible. It's not really in there. It's like a first time new revelation for me. Like God has told me something that he's never told anybody in history and will never tell anybody again. Like I have heard something unique. It doesn't really agree with the Bible, but you know, I'm a prophet. We don't have that kind of prophecy now in New Testament times after Jesus. But in the Old Testament, Miriam would have been the way or one of the ways with Moses and Aaron that people heard from God. She's got a significant ministry in that. One helpful way of looking at it is if you look at the Hebrew word for prophetess, this exact word that we've read, prophetess, is nabi. And it is derived from a verb which means to bubble up. Say that with me, bubble up. What I'd love for us to see in this is that God, in working through her, bubbles up so that she is bringing forth who God is and bringing forth what he's going to do. And that still applies today. On our Sunday mornings, I would love it if at Redeemer we're a church where there are people all over the place with a sense of God, the Holy Spirit inspiring them, bubbling up with a message from God. I think that's true when God speaks to me. I feel like, oh, 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 God's given me something to bring. It's almost like it's bubbling up. That still applies today. But we still test it to see if we're getting it right or not. Okay, so this passage declares very confidently she is a prophetess. It says, right, right, Miriam, the prophetess. So you remember that 80-year period that we skipped? For her at the beginning of this verse, before she stands up and sings to be considered a prophetess, that would probably mean that she was actually acting as one of the leaders with Aaron of Israel for 80 years. Moses wasn't around, was he? He'd come and then he'd gone. And so we think probably... Whilst Moses was away, Aaron and Miriam would have led and spoken God's will. As a prophetess and the oldest member of her family, she would have had a hand in leading God's people now and, I guess, pass this verse into the future. She, Miriam, was a heavyweight prophet even before she starts to sing, leading the nation. But now she starts to break a bit of new ground with the music. So let's come on to the music. So Miriam, thirdly, had a heart song to magnify God. Okay, I've taken this phrase magnify out of the psalm. So David uses this phrase magnify, and this is where I kind of want us to look at Miriam's heart. Miriam, if you can imagine the scene, is standing. Moses has sung this first song. She's standing as a prophetess of Israel. What's she got there? She has got a platform, an opportunity to do anything she wants to lead the people. What does she choose to do? Along with Moses, she magnifies God. John Piper uses this in the way that he teaches about the Psalms. He says, when we talk about magnifying, we normally think of a magnifying glass, yeah? So you've got something small, something quite insignificant that we make bigger than it really is, yeah? We're kind of blowing it out of proportion. That is not what David says when he says, I magnify the Lord. That's not what Miriam is doing. Instead, we're talking about 
telescoping. So you've got magnifying something small to make it big, and using a telescope is taking something that is inconceivably huge, but seems small and insignificant from our position, and giving it some of its real gravitas by blowing it up. You following me? So you've got these two different types of magnifying. Miriam makes her stand here by declaring who God is and what he has done as a prophetess. She takes the opportunity to magnify, to telescope, to give Israel an opportunity to say, sing to our great God for what he's done. David says, I'm going to make a big God begin to look as big as he really is. That's what he means when he magnifies. John Piper says this, the whole duty of the Christian can be summed up in this, feel, think, and act in a way that will make God look as great as he really is. And this for us on a Sunday morning for worship is something that is a challenge in four ways. One, for us to magnify God actually involves doing it for ourselves. So let's get practical on a Sunday morning. When we turn up, don't you sometimes have moments in worship where you feel like, wow, I'm never going to forget this, God. I'm never going to forget that you're my provider. You're everything I need. You save me. You redeem me. Oh, I'm never going to despair again. I won't ever be anxious because I can just know you are big. You are awesome. You're amazing. And then the next day, you've forgotten it all. And so we come on Sunday mornings, and something we need to do practically as we come to worship God, in Miriam's example, following her example, is to start to glorify and magnify. To start to put the big God in his real place. Start to look in a telescope and say, ah, I'm going to start to sing out. I'm going to start to speak out who God really is, what he's really done, so that he doesn't seem small from my perspective, but so we get back very quickly in our times of worship to everybody, heads up, this is who our God is. And that's what Miriam does so well. She stands up. She's got her big opportunity. She says, we are going to sing to the Lord for what he's done. So not just for ourselves, there's an element of it for each other as well. So we've got these microphones at the front on Sunday mornings. I think we'd be a church rich in our worship if people come to the front and say, I tell you what, I'm going to help you look in a telescope. I'm going to help you this morning see God for how big he really is and start to magnify God for the benefit of each other. We do that. We do have people who come forward and grab a mic and say a big prayer. Some people come forward and share something that God's done in their lives or a Bible verse. But that is such a healthy character trait of a church is that you come in yourself saying, wake up my soul, my God is big. My God has done it all. I'm standing on the other side of redemption. I'm standing on the safe shore of this sea, God having delivered me from all of my enemies once and forever. I am going to magnify. Come on, wake myself up. And it's important for us to do that because we've often forgotten who God is. But then also for us to have a steady flow of people saying, you know what, this magnifying job, I can help you with that. I can help each other with that. Say, this is what God has done. This is who he is. And there is actually a prophetic element to that in what Miriam does as well. Because what she's saying is, God is my deliverer. She's also saying, God will be my deliverer in the future. And as we come to the front, as we share, maybe it's not on Sundays, in community groups, whatever it is, and say, this is what God has done. There's a prophetic element of us saying, and he's going to do the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Okay, so application from Miriam for our Sunday mornings there. We can do it for our family. 
as well and for our friends. As a church, we can be people who magnify God to each other. Almost like take a telescope and say, here's a facet of God that you might not have seen recently. I don't know if that's how you hold a telescope. (laughs) John Piper also says about this, if you come on a Sunday morning and you don't feel like singing, then your aim in loosing your tongue, as in by just starting to sing, with words of gratitude, your aim is that God would come and fill your words with the emotion of true gratitude. If we just wait until we've got everything right up here first on a Sunday, it's going to take us a while. But if we start off by saying, right, I'm going to say words of gratitude. Holy Spirit, come give me a true feeling and meaning of gratitude in my heart as well. That's a good way around. I think that's biblical. Okay, coming into land then, we've got two other quick things. Miriam, as I say, she's remembered as having a huge legacy, partly because of this next thing. Hundreds of thousands follow her lead. There is an infectious nature to what Miriam does in this passage. She stands up, and I think it's part of this bubbling up of the gifting God's given her, and suddenly what she is singing and doing affects so many other people. We have some great women worship leaders at Redeemer, Abby and Yvette and other singers who lead us in worshiping, setting a great example, and I think sometimes we take that for granted. We've got infectious worshipers at our church as well, who when they stand and sing, we're like, you're on it. You're taking us somewhere. Let's go for it. And that's what Miriam does here. She leads the other women in praise and magnification. And actually, when it says that she sings to them, it's the men and the women. So we're talking millions of people follow her lead. One commentator says that Miriam wove the matchless, mighty ode of victory into the conscious life of the people. So Miriam leads these people to take it up a notch. I don't know what Moses' voice would have been like, but you get the impression that she says, all right, we're not just going to sing monotonously now. This is where we're going to take this. And remember, this is the first song recorded in the Bible. So Miriam here, and we'll get onto this, sets a trend. She says, you know what singing of the redemption of our God looks like? It looks like some percussion and some dancing as well as some singing. And so you get essentially this scene where she stands up and the women follow her. They've all got instruments. It's like a massive samba band. It's like a carnival feel. I just want to reiterate, there are 600,000 women on this shore. Like, this is kicking off. And we read, one person says, the Jewish women would have stood in rows, swaying and moving their arms and their bodies, singing in harmony, moving and chanting rhythmically together. What we're talking about here is nothing short of the first Beyonce concert. If you think you've seen some kind of concert like Beyonce, Justin Timberlake, like something pretty good with choreographed dance, you should have been here. This was a heck of a lot of dancers. This was a heck of a lot of rhythm. This was a heck of a lot of my full energy, my biggest passion, giving glory to God for what he's done. So she takes it up a notch. She is probably leading hundreds of thousands of women here in a huge song, And you'd imagine at least tens of thousands are dancing and playing. Both women and men are being led by her singing and by her demonstration. She's the first worship leader, but of a pretty large scale. Okay, and finally, she instigates a tradition of celebration. One commentator says that her song here, as she worships in word and melody with instruments and with physical movements, leading others in exuberant thanksgiving, set a precedent established by her 
for later generations of Jewish women. Matthew Henry says that, from this moment on, famous victories were applauded and celebrated by the daughters of Israel. So without Miriam in this scene, there's no new precedent set. But actually we find for hundreds and hundreds of years and up to today, Jewish culture and the Israel culture for years and years and years was built upon big celebrations. She has set this new trend of when we celebrate God, we celebrate him properly. We do it with dancing and singing, giving him our best. And so she sets a new trend. I love that Matthew Henry commentary who says, from this point onwards, every time there's a victory, the women would celebrate exuberantly. I think I'd love that to be on our Sunday mornings as well. Somebody comes to the front and says, here's a victory that God has won in my life. Or even we're reminded of what God has done through the life of Jesus in his victory. And what do we do? Do we sing monotonously? No, we say, right, let me find something to shake, something to tinkle. Let me find an instrument. Let me raise my voice, clap my hands, get moving, because we're going to celebrate the victory of God in our lives. And that's the precedent that Miriam sets. And that's partly why she's remembered. For decades, for hundreds of years in the future, Micah says, Miriam, I gave you Miriam for the Exodus. And everybody would have known who she was from her legacy, from being a prophetess, and for setting this new trend of how to worship God. Miriam has set a new watermark for celebrating and enjoying the freedom of being the redeemed. And she will always be remembered for that. Okay. Just as we close, some of you know the story of Miriam and you know there's a little fly in the ointment. There's a little mark against Miriam's name in the Bible. Some of you won't, so I'll just quickly run over the story. The three big things that happen in Miriam's life are, one, she, she saves Moses. Amazing. She's part of that incredible um, providence of God. Two, she sets this amazing example as a prophetess. She leads the people for years and then sets this new precedent saying, we're going to sing, we're going to dance, we're going to have a great time celebrating the victory of God. She leads the people. And then a little while later, the Bible, don't you love it, doesn't just tell us a fluffy version of the story. It actually gives us real people with real problems and real lives. A little bit later, we read that Miriam and Aaron approach Moses and make a power play. They think, actually, Moses, you know, you're the younger brother in this family, and we're prophets too. God's using and speaking to us too. So why don't maybe we have a little bit more of the position? Moses, by his character, is quite a kind of responsive. He's very obedient, and when God speaks, he goes and does something. Miriam, you feel like, we probably know leaders like this, a little bit more pushy, a little bit more like, so give me the limelight. And so that's Miriam's natural tendency here. God responds by saying, you know what? I have set Moses as my number one prophet for this time. I speak to him face to face. And Miriam actually suffers for a week with leprosy as discipline. So we actually then read later on about her death and this massive period of mourning and how the nation would have remembered her great legacy. So she obviously repented. She came back into the camp was healed, God healed her from leprosy. She came back in and she was loved and admired and left a legacy for the nation forever. But what I thought would be helpful would be to have a quick look at what this means for our lives as worship. So worship we use as a word, sometimes unhelpfully, about our singing on a Sunday morning. But our whole lives are about worship. The Bible describes in Romans 1.21 how although they, being some people, 
they knew God. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And what does it say? They worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. Joseph L. Garlington, a preacher in the U.S., says, Worship is like breathing. You're created to do it all the time, and it's a lifestyle. So let me say this. If you're not a Christian here this morning, if you'd say, actually, I wouldn't say I'm a follower of Jesus, the Bible says that you're still worshiping. It says you won't be worshiping the truth about God, but created things, other things. But just as worship is like breathing, you will still be doing it somehow. For Miriam, we think probably what she was really worshipping as well as God, what she was worshipping in her heart was a little bit of position, wasn't it? She wanted a little bit of a bigger stage. She wanted a little bit more influence. And that can be true of some of us. Christian or maybe you don't say you're a Christian. It can be true that in our hearts, we're starting to always look. The temptation is there to start to worship other things. We can identify what we worship by how we spend our money. We can identify how our lives are worshipped by what our time and our energy go into. One thing to think about is what do you daydream about? Not just once or twice, but where does your mind go to to make your heart happy? What is it that you feel like you need to make you happy? And so worship is a lifestyle. Worship is something we'll all always be doing. And if you're not a Christian this morning, then one thing we're going to do is break bread and have communion And I'd love to just tell you that in my life, I've found that as well as great times of singing on a Sunday morning being worshipped, I have been tempted and have been led to worship other things. It's a temptation constantly to worship yourself, isn't it? To worship your comfort, to worship your status, maybe your job. Tim Keller says, if I have that, that thing, I'll feel like my life has meaning. I'll know I have value. I'll feel significant and secure. And this is my experience. He says, first, it will enslave you. Whatever that thing is, you'll tell yourself that you have to have it or there's no tomorrow. But second, if you do achieve it, if you do get this thing that you're craving, you're worshipping, it will fail to deliver the fulfillment you expected. And let me just tell you as we close, that's my story. If you're not a Christian here, my story is that I am feeling constantly the pull to worship something other than God. But the only thing that truly satisfies, the only object of worship that isn't a disappointment is Jesus Christ is the great deliverance that he has given me. I stand on the shore looking over my life saying, God has done this amazing miracle in my life. And so in our lives as worship, my challenge to you would be, what do you think is your object of worship today? And if it's not Jesus Christ, maybe it's job, comfort, success, money. Maybe it's you just feel like you're living for yourself. This morning, we're going to give an opportunity for you to say, maybe today is the day that I can start to worship Jesus with my life. As Christians, we can follow Miriam's example. We've got a redeemer to shout about, don't we? We can be exuberant in the example that she set. We can be the kind of people who come on a Sunday morning and say, wake up my soul, God has delivered me, and says at the front, come on guys, this is the glorious um, telescopic nature of God. I'd love us to be a church like that. I think we are and we can continue to be and we can grow in that. And if you're not a Christian this morning, let me just leave that challenge with you. Who is it that you're choosing as your object of worship? So that's the story of Miriam.